0: Through him of giving me the chance to to bring a message today. Um, I do want to let you know. My wife asked me as I was preparing this week for the message. She said, "Mark, do you think it's kind of like riding a bike?" And I said, uh, "Maybe." I said, uh, "But right now, and especially after the first service, I feel like I got a rusty chain and a flat tire, and uh, you know, trying to uh, you know get back up on the bike and you know move forward a little bit. So bear with me. I appreciate um, your." Uh, forbearance. But, uh, with that said, uh, maybe the most important thing of all, um, when we're weak, he's strong. Amen. So, uh, so let's bow together and pray and ask him to meet us here in his word. Heavenly father, um, you are glorious. It's so wonderful to gather among your people and in a place and, uh, in a church body that longs for you, that, uh, that believes in you and in an atmosphere, Lord, that uh, trusts in the reality and the power and the presence of you and uh, our desperate need for a God like that, a God like you. Um, Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you have for us today. Lord, I pray that you would remove every obstacle, um, both in me and in us. So that, Lord, uh, by your Holy Spirit, your word would go forth and it would have its desired effect. Uh, Lord, we love you. Uh, we look forward to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, um, please turn with me to First Samuel 13, if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, we're going to work our way all the way through the chapter together. And uh, we begin right here in verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Um, ben, or whoever's back at the screen, could you go, up and go ahead and throw the, the map up real quick? This is a little bit hard to see, but I just want us to get our bearings about us a little bit. This is a very small section of the Holy Land just north of Jerusalem, so just west of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, and east of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, I just want you to get kind of a picture of this in your mind before we go back to the Word, so you can kind of place yourself in the, the geographic area that we're talking about. So what we just realized is that is that Saul and his 2,000 soldiers are in that area of Bethel up there to the northwest, that Jonathan and his 1,000 are down here south of that in Gibeah. And what we're about to discover is that there's a garrison or an outpost of the Philistine army that is located at Michmash, which is right there in the middle. And you might ask yourself, what do we make of this Philistine thing? Well, the truth is that the nation of the Philistines was really the the superpower of the day in the Holy Land. They were really in charge. And the reason they had these garrisons in other nations' land was to keep an eye on them and to keep control of them. And we're going to see that later in this passage when we see that the Philistines, for example, didn't want any of these neighboring nations to have access to make weapons of war. And so they even controlled the blacksmiths and made sure they were all Philistines and actually forbid these nations that they controlled from doing anything that would put them in a position To put the Philistines at risk. So take a mental picture of that. We'll come back to this in a little bit. And let's go back to the Word. So it says that uh, Jonathan, verse 3, attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. And then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land, and he said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, and if you had... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600, from 3,000 to 600, from 330,000 at the victory over the Ammonites, down to 600. Verse 16, it says, Saul and his own son, his son Jonathan, and the men with them were staying in Gibeah at Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties were sent out from the Philistine camp in three detachments, one at Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim facing the desert. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said otherwise. The Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for reporting goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul... And his son Jonathan had them. You know, when we look at the picture that God paints for us here in this passage, it's it's definitely not a pretty one. But I, I think the question that's begged um, of us, as those coming to God's word, is is this: How do we respond? What do we generally do when the pressure is turned up, when the screw is tightened? Now, this account of Saul, it it begins in an interesting way. And if you do have your Bibles with you, and if you would, could you throw up just the first part of the passage, um, verse 1 there of the, the Scripture passage? Great. I don't know, can you see the brackets? I didn't even realize they were there uh, this morning when I gave the message. But 30 is in brackets, and the word 40 is in brackets, and you go, what is that? Well, the reason that's there like that in the NIV is that there's a recognition that in the best Hebrew manuscripts we have, which the language that the Old Testament was written in originally, the word 30, or the number 30, and the number 40 aren't there, There's actually a Hebrew idiom that's going on here, and there's a lot of reasons. We won't take the time for why, when, the Old Testament, the Hebrew, was translated into Greek at kind of a critical time in human history, that that is kind of what happened. But the Hebrew idiom actually means, it sort of signifies that the emphasis here is that instead of 30, the the word is actually one, that, that, that It's almost as if it says that uh, Saul was king in his first year. Not that he began in his 30th year, but it, it emphasizes his first year. And then where you see 40, actually the word in Hebrew is the word two. It actually seems to indicate on sort of a literal English translation that, and he reigned two years. Well, to make a long, worthwhile study short, what the emphasis seems to be here is this, is that during Saul's first year, things were relatively quiet. And that what we read here in 1 Samuel 13 is an explanation of what occurred in his second year. You know, and thus comes our text today. So just hold on to that for a moment. That's going to become important a little bit later in the message. But the question that we've got to deal with right now, again, is that issue of pressure. You know, it's interesting, Saul had a year as king when things seemed to have been relatively quiet, but then in his second year, the pressure turns up. But the pressure turns up for a few reasons, some of those reasons very, very subtle, and some of those reasons very, very obvious. There's a little bit of extrapolation here, but I want you to consider something. When Saul was kind of inaugurated publicly and reaffirmed as the king before the people, that's sort of the start of the clock. That's that, that first year. Right on the heels of that, Samuel called all the people together and he, he reckoned with them before God. He let them know in, in no uncertain terms that they had sinned against God by asking for a king, You know, the desire to be like the nations around them. Their desire to have someone that they could see and who could go before them and lead them into battle and and kind of retake the land. that That in actuality, they were rejecting God. They were rejecting God as their king and their demand for a human king. And that that was something they needed to repent of. God affirmed Samuel's message, as, as we learned, in a, an incredible thunderstorm and a huge rainstorm at a time that was miraculous, a time that it would have never happened, but it happened, and they knew it is of God, and they fell on their faces, and they repented of their sin. It's so wonderful, and it's encouraging that, that God led Samuel to say, don't be afraid. You have sinned. You have turned away from God. You have done a wicked thing, but God has not forsaken you. God's with you, and he's going to work with this thing. He's going to make himself fully available to your king that he's appointed and to you. But you must trust him. You must obey his word. You must not turn away and and go your own way. And then Samuel says something glorious. He says, I'm going to be here He goes, far be it from me to stop praying for you, to stop interceding for you, to stop being a prophet and a priest for you. And on top of all of that, I am here to provide you with instruction in the ways of the Lord, to provide you with all you need from God so that you trust him and that you walk by faith in the Lord. That was that kind of big kickoff, and then a year goes by, right? And something really interesting occurs. It's as if Saul, during that year, rather than taking advantage of the opportunity that he was given by God through Samuel, it's almost as if something began to percolate in his mind. But maybe over that span of time, remembering perhaps the great victory over the Ammonites, he was like, I I need something else. I need to to step up and, and be the king. He was looking, almost looking for the next thing. We abruptly kind of get introduced to a decision that was made. And I think we can safely assume that it was ultimately Saul's command, but Saul commands Jonathan, his son, and Jonathan, his son, takes his thousand and attacks this garrison. Would you throw that map back up, Kim? This garrison actually at Geba is actually where that garrison was located. And Jonathan wins a great victory. What I want us to notice, though, is this. Who led the Israelite army against the Ammonites? And who did so under the the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures say? Do you remember? It was Saul. The king led God's people into battle against the Ammonites, all led by God, the Holy Spirit. But in this case, we see no evidence of that. Instead, we see Saul send whom? His son, and Jonathan leads not the 2,000 with, with Saul, but just his 1,000 into battle. It's worth thinking about. You know, it's almost as if at this point, not only does Saul not consult with God, we see no evidence of that, but on top of that, he sends Jonathan. It's almost as if if Jonathan fails, Jonathan could take the fall. If Jonathan succeeds, Saul might be able to take the credit. And as we see in the scriptures, that's exactly what he does, doesn't he? A trumpet is sounded. The victory is won. The Philistines are upset. There's a call to war, much like this call to war against the But the word that goes out is what? Who has won a great victory over the Philistines? Who has attacked the Philistines? Saul has attacked the Philistines. And so kicks off an interesting set of events. You know, I wonder, and and I, I challenge us to wonder, what do you think was going on inside of Saul that provoked this set of decisions? What pressure do you think he felt to be seen in a certain way before the people? There's almost a sense in which this battle is being manufactured. This battle is being started by Saul there's no evidence of God's leading and there's no evidence of consulting with God. It's almost as if there was a pressure building in Saul that provoked him to act on it. And he does. But then something very interesting happens. Whereas when God was leading, God was honored, God was trusted, and the call went out against the battle against the Ammonites, how many Israelites gathered? 330,000 gathered. And they gathered in courage, and they gathered in valor and boldness, all led by the Lord, Saul at the front, and they won a phenomenal victory. Here the call goes out to everybody to gather against the Philistines. And those few that do show up, when they get a look at the enemy, when they get a look at this vast Philistine army, they are so scared, they are so undone, that they hide anywhere they can. They they jump and run. So much so that by the time we get to the whittling down of even the king's guard, this hand selected elite group of 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with Jonathan, we end up with how many when it's all said and done? 600. Very different outcome. And in contrast, we see a complete flip the Philistines gather in such numbers and with such power and with such weaponry that it can't be counted it says that they're as the sand of the seashore and again in the midst of all of this we we don't see the presence of God we don't see Saul look to God acknowledge God or God intervening to provide any evidence that he is behind any of this so obviously at this point with this kind of enemy And this kind of thing going on, now the pressure is obvious. And it amps up in a huge, huge way. Well, there is one thing that Saul seems to have grasped the hold of in the midst of all of this. He remembers that Samuel had given him an instruction from the Lord. And that instruction was to go to Gilgal and wait there for seven days. Not six and a half, not six and three quarter, but but seven days full days, to wait on the arrival of Samuel, and that Samuel would serve as that intercessor before God. He would offer the necessary sacrifices. He would seek God with Saul, and God would provide a word, direction for Saul. This is what it meant to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to put his faith in God. But looking at all of this and within that seven days when even his closest soldiers, his most devoted and loyal soldiers, began to leave him and mutiny. What does Saul do in his time of greatest pressure? He takes matters into his own hands. He takes a a, a ritual that, that God had given for the purpose of seeking God and offering him sacrifices from a true heart and he uses them as strictly a religious ritual to, to in a way, almost kind of manipulate God. It's, it's like in that moment he remembers wait a minute, wait a minute. Here I am, and, and you know what? I think I forgot to, to look to God. And so now he, he almost tries to use this ritual to ask God, have you heard this phrase, to bless his mess? To bless his mess. He's halfway through the offering. He's offered the burnt offerings. Now comes the next offering, and who arrives? He arrives right within the time promised. He arrives on the seventh day, and it's, it's Samuel. And the Scriptures say that, that Saul leaves the offering, and he goes out to greet Samuel. And it's interesting, that word greet really makes a clear picture of, of Saul. Trying to gloss over things. In a real way, it's as if Saul runs up to Samuel and says, Hey, 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 you just arrived just in time. You know, we haven't finished the ritual. Um, why don't you pick up from here and take us home? <laughs> and then tell us what God's going to do to to deliver us and to uh, save us. And it's almost as if he's saying, maybe make me look good too. Because right now, things don't look good at all. Not at all. But Samuel doesn't respond the way that Saul hopes he will. Samuel, clearly led by the Holy Spirit, under the leadership of God, asks Saul one question What have you done? What have you done? Clearly, Saul hasn't gotten anything right. You know, the story at this point is not good. Under pressure both internal to Saul and then very much now external and all around him. A mess that's been created by his lack of faith and trust in God. It's an opportunity for taking responsibility, an opportunity for confession, an opportunity for repentance. Does Saul take advantage of the opportunity? Absolutely not. He hits yet another crossroads, and at that crossroads, one being the path of faith in God and his ability, the other the path of faith in himself, really. He chooses that lesser path, and he he blames Samuel for not showing up on time. He blames his circumstances. He, He looks to these soldiers that were leaving him. He speaks about the fact that at any moment... The Philistines could slip through the gap and, and attack us. I had to do. In essence, he says, I did what I had to do. I took matters into my own hands because I had no choice. It's almost as like if God had done what I thought he said he would do, if you had shown up just a little earlier, none of this would have had to happen. But under these circumstances, I had to do what I had to do. The, the means justifies, you've heard this, justifies the ends. And so Samuel lets Saul know that a man whose heart is not for God but for himself, a, a man whose faith is not in the Lord, in the Lord's ability, but in his own a man whose desire is, is to see God and, and to have God glorified in his life versus a man who really would, is tempted and falls into that temptation of using God to try to glorify himself is not one who can be the king of God's people. He's not one that can help the people to see God and to know God as their one true king he wasn't a man after god's own heart and so the kingship was going to be taken away from him i want to mention this to you though it's it's very important and i messed up on time this morning so i'm i'm working on that so we'll we'll work through this but i just want to challenge you a little bit in your reading and as we keep working through 1 samuel there's a declaration that saul would lose his position as king, but that doesn't happen here. It actually doesn't happen until later. And I want to challenge you to consider why that is and, and what God is actually laying before Saul. The, the further opportunity, space, if you will, to be able to recognize his sin, to own it, take responsibility, and to repent. Um, just consider that. But, all that to say on the heels of, of Saul's uh, defense of himself, his excuses, his justification, and his blaming to try to protect himself. The scriptures give us this, this really incredible account of just how dire everything is now and how dire it's becoming. I mean, we've got 600 guys with two swords between them. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous. What king, <laughs> what king, whether he's a, a man of faith or not, ever calls together his army without the weapons of war, you know, to be able to do what they do. Again, there's a lot there, um, but the point is simply combat against an army that is too many to count. If ever there was a picture of a humanly impossible situation, this is it. And they are absolutely in the pit. Saul is in the pit, if you will, and he's taking his people into the pit of his own self-reliance. Of his own effort at self preservation, of self justification. Does that make sense? Kim, would you throw up this slide there? You know, there's a big debate. I know David referred to it a few weeks ago. And, you know, as we look at the sovereignty of God, and by all means, I know Stonebridge as a church and many other Christian churches want so much to understand God's sovereignty. You know, part of that is kind of this wrestling with, did God know in advance that Saul would respond this way? Did he know Saul's heart so much in advance that, that in that knowing, did God in essence kind of select Saul, kind of choose him for failure, if you will? You know, that Saul was kind of doomed to go this way from the beginning and and such that God would use Saul as an example. An example to the people of, again, their, their sinful request for a king, perhaps as an example to those that would come after. In a way, there's a sense in which we go so far as to look at God's election of people like this as if God is selecting scapegoats, that, that he's foreordained, and you will, to be a failure in this regard. But David said it, and I affirm it. I mean, it's just where my heart is, and I think the full counsel of Scripture kind of supports that when we look at the character of God, and we even look right here in this passage, what we see, though, is a God that chooses Saul. Not for failure, but chooses Saul and gives Saul every opportunity for success. Gives Saul every opportunity to know him, to trust him, to experience him, so that Saul can lead Saul that can handle the pressures, Saul can handle the struggles, he can handle that screw getting tightened with absolute faith and trust and reliance in God rather than himself. There are five things that God provides for Saul, not just in chapter 13. Some of these things are things that he's provided well before this time, but here they are. God provides Saul with his people, particularly Samuel. God gave Samuel to Saul as as priest, as prophet, as mentor, as teacher, as friend, as the one who would speak the very words of God to Saul, that he would walk in them. God provided Saul with his spirit on two different occasions in ways that were unmistakable to Saul. Once when he prophesied with the prophets, another when he went into battle against the Ammonites. The Scriptures say that the Spirit of God came upon Saul in power, and he was changed. He wasn't just changed in a way that other people could see and comment on. He was changed in a way that he could know it. He tasted of the Lord, tasted of his ability and his power, and he was a witness. I mean, even as he served the Lord as king in those moments, he was a witness to the kingship of God. Amen. He was a witness to what God can do when God shows up, of who God can gather when God's in charge. Also, God provided Saul with his word. You know, in this case, I think the best picture we have of that, again, is is through Samuel. Samuel was God's mouthpiece. Saul was... Given the opportunity, the promise of God through Samuel that, hey, I'm here and I'm here to teach you the ways of God. To help you understand the ways of faith, of trust in God and what it means to obey God's promises. To obey God's faithfulness. And also God provided Saul with time. That's why it's, I think, so important that we dig a little deeper in verse 1 and we check out things like those brackets and we try to understand them, because there's a sense in which that first year of Saul's reign was the gift of time. The gift of time, right on the heels of hearing the promise that I'm going to provide you with instruction through Samuel. All you need to do is receive it. You just need to come and sit at the feet of Samuel and receive the word of God, that God would come through. God would instill in them faith. God would instill in them trust. And and they could know God and learn how to walk in faith. But it seems like in that first year of Saul's reign, Saul squandered the opportunity. Instead, his focus was more on, what do I have to do to be king, to be seen as king? And that seems to be a motivating factor in that very first act of war against the, the Philistines. And then lastly, and this may be the most important of all, for Saul and for us, Saul blew it. I mean, all of chapter 13 is a testimony of failure. But even so, Samuel asked Saul a question. He said, what have you done? What have you done? Look back, Saul, and track the trail. There's a trail to be tracked. There's Kind of rotten breadcrumbs all along that path, track it back. Where did this start? Where has it brought you? What are you doing right now? And where are you at? But instead of retaking responsibility and repenting of seeing what he had done and seeing his heart for where he really was, trusting so much more in himself and his circumstances than he was in the Lord, instead, what does he do? He justifies, he blames, he shifts responsibility, he tries to cover up, all for what purpose? To to make himself, again, look good. Later we're going to see it seems so important to Saul to look like a king. When God was trying to teach him what it really meant to be a servant king in service of the one true king, almighty God. So, what about us? Um, true confessions. What I'm discovering in my life is that in small things and big things, you know, I look at 1 Samuel 13, I see some big things. I see a guy who's been called to be the king of a whole nation of people. I just think about the pressure I might feel. In the thought of that, let alone the experience of that. But for many of us, and for me too, we find ourselves in positions, maybe as a husband, as a wife, as a, as a father. We may not be, uh, you know, leading a nation, but we're trying to lead a family. You know, we find ourselves in a position at work, again, where we feel the weight of great responsibility. You I mean, we're concerned about how other people see us. We're concerned about our ability to be able to get the job done. And we feel pressure. You know, beyond those positions that we hold, everyday life comes at us hard and fast, and we feel that screw turning. You know, I think one of the things we have to reckon with, one of the reasons why God put Saul before us is that is that Saul experienced that too. And at every turn, when he was afraid, when he was concerned. Rather than turning to God, trusting in God, he kept just trying to do what seemed right at the time. And I've always said that God preaches the message first to me. And then I get the opportunity to share it with whomever he wants me to share it with. And I think of the many times that I've faced situations that terrified me, made me horribly uncomfortable, and I was so desperate for relief, (laughs) so desperate to change my circumstances, so desperate to accomplish my goal and my hope in the situation that I failed to pray. It seemed so urgent at the time. I felt such desperation that my honest confession, in small ways and big ways, was to take matters into my own hands. It's easy for us, I think, when we look back at someone like Saul and we look at his position and his circumstances to kind of distance ourselves and say, Wow, Saul is an example to me, but we fail to take the next step and relate. We fail to recognize that I really truly believe that God was absolutely committed to Saul's success. I hope you believe that too. That rather than choosing Saul for failure, instead what we see as evidence on the screen and all through scripture is that God gave himself to Saul in ways that gave Saul every opportunity to trust in the Lord with all his heart. And to lean not on his own understanding. In all of his ways and situations and circumstances, to to, to trust in him. and, And God promised, he's always promised, to make that path straight. To show us that way. We may have to wait. We may have to bear up under those feelings that we're so desperate to relieve ourselves of. But God is faithful. Amen? He is faithful. And he wants our absolute faith to be in him. Not in ourselves, not in quick fixes, not in compromises, not in taking matters into our own hands. It's a big deal here in 1 Samuel 13, but it's it's a testimony of our story, of our lives, of our hearts before God, of this very powerful tendency in our sin nature provoked by the deceiver, the enemy of our hearts and the enemy of God to get us to to ride the fence, to compromise, to allow the, the pressures and the desire for relief from pressure and to be seen in certain ways and to project an image of ourselves to others, to force our hand and cause us to trust more in ourselves than we do in God. Bo, if you'd come. Right now, I think the way we track that trail in our lives, the way we kind of follow those breadcrumbs is, is this. What scares you the most? Where do you feel pressure the most in your life? What forces your hand and makes you almost desperate for a fix, for a solution, for a change, for relief? for the accomplishment of a goal that seems so critically important or your reputation is on the line your job is on the line and and rather than be prayerful and rather than look to the only one who is faithful who loves you and is so passionate desperate <laughs> to have you trust him know him that he came <laughs> he didn't just send a king he didn't just send a prophet or a priest He himself came to us. He died to remove the barrier and the the, the sin and the temptation of self-reliance, of self-absorption, of self-preservation, of of self-glorification. You know, he faced all of those temptations and he won the victory. And on the cross, he won the ultimate victory. That victory is made fully available to you. No matter what your circumstance, no matter what pressures, no matter what fears, God is here, fully available to you through Jesus Christ. And and gloriously, he doesn't just come upon us from time to time to empower us through his Holy Spirit. He's offered his very presence and spirit to dwell within you that you might live in victory, no matter what the odds are stacked against you. Amen. So as we stand... I just like if the ministry teams would go ahead and come forward. We're just going to spend some time in worship. There's an opportunity for us. You know, it's it's right and it's good that at times we would let God open the door to our hearts and see what he sees. Without fear anymore. But just to take an honest look at where we're at. At what gets our goat, about what tempts us and provokes us to take matters into our own hands and to trust more in ourselves and our circumstances than we do in God. Let him show you that today. Because he's not wanting to show you to condemn you or to make you feel more ashamed or guilty or to tell you that you've lost your position with him and you can never get it back does it because he loves you and he wants to free you to trust him in ways you've never trusted him before and even in the face of an insurmountable enemy beyond count God can do immeasurably more than anything you could do for yourself or anything that you could ever ask or imagine he wants to show himself to you and renew your faith so that in every step you take along the way no matter what you encounter your faith is in God He promises to come through. He always has, and He always will. Come as He leads you, as we stand and sing.